Hey, podcast people. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to another City Council edition of the City of Champions podcast, proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. This episode is brought to you by the Edmonton Public Library, who I mentioned before I'm a big fan of. Trust me, don't bother buying your books when you can instead just get them from the library for free. Books are expensive. They take up space and they're heavy as hell to move. Um, So since we're on the subject of the Edmonton Public Library, make sure to check out their host podcast called Overdue Fines, hosted by Bryce Crittenden and Caroline Land. They discuss movies, music, books, pretty much any sort of popular culture and media that you can think of, and maybe some that you've never thought of. You'll also learn more about what the library does, uh, and the podcast comes out every two weeks, so you can find it at epl.ca slash podcast, as well as in my show notes. So as I mentioned earlier this episode, I continue exploring the chambers of City Hall this week, speaking to Ward 8 Councillor Ben Henderson. The councillor is involved in a number of initiatives in the city aimed at preserving and promoting art, culture, and community in Edmonton. So we talk about why this should be important to all of us, and we also talk about how to respect our history while still keeping an eye on change and progress. The councillor also plays a big role in Edmonton's winter city strategy. If you haven't noticed, it gets cold here. Uh, which this has given him the opportunity to explore and learn from comparable cities to Edmonton around the world. And it's also given him an intimate knowledge of the particular set of unique challenges that we face here in our city. Uh, So it was obviously fascinating to hear the council talk about strategies for moving and growing the city of Edmonton. Uh, He's super knowledgeable and it's clear that he cares about this city a ton. So please enjoy my conversation with Councillor Ben Henderson. And we're live. Councillor, thanks for joining me. Happy to do this. I appreciate you uh, having me down to City Council. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> City Hall here. Um, beautiful building. And um, there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about. Um, as I mentioned in previous episodes, you know, this is a way for me to learn about things totally outside of my lane. Um, and you know, yourself being part of City Council, I'm sure you've had to absorb a lot of things that you never thought you'd be learning about as well. Um, so for yeah. me... You know, it's a, uh, it's a good opportunity to learn from someone like yourself. Um, I want to start uh, by asking you, sort of, well, you've been a Ward 8 resident, you know, City Council of Ward mm-hmm. 8, been a Ward 8 resident since 1981. I'm I actually not, like I, you know, I'm, I was a Ward, when I was first elected, it was okay. Ward 4. Okay. Um, Did you live so, there? Uh, yeah, and, uh, but Ward 4 was twice the size. Yeah. So um, I have... You know, lived in I lived in Ward Four, which is what I was first elected to since I came to Edmonton in '81, mm-hmm. um, on both sides of the river. So, uh, you know, interesting. I uh, so I I certainly have lived in Ward Eight, um, but when the wards were split in half, I ended up getting cut out of my own ward. So I'm right <laughs> on the boundary, um, but actually, strictly speaking, I'm in Ward Six. I don't get to vote for myself. No way. But, uh, but uh, yeah, so. But that was you know that was you know and there's a number of us uh, that don't live in our wards pretty much dating back mm-hmm. to that time. Mm-hmm. I suspect, you know, that as, you know, now the rediv- now the, the, that redivision in, of, of the wards is, you know, now 10 years in the past, right. or, you know, nine years in the past, you're not going to see that. But a number of us sort of ended up 
getting caught outside our own wards. How often do they re revisit the boundary? Well, that was a big revisit because up until then we'd had, uh, it, you know, we'd always had 12 councillors, mm -hmm. uh, but up until then it had been six wards with two councillors per ward. So basically we split the wards in half and that would have been in, so I think we're coming up to, we did a small revision um, uh, a few years ago. I think we're coming up to probably what's a larger revision in the next year or so and okay. obviously with the annexation of the new land to the mm -hmm. to the south that really changes things and you know we're seeing a different balance we try to keep the wards balanced in terms of population so mm -hmm. it's probably we're coming up to the 10-year mark since the last time we did it and I, so i suspect that there's a, a a larger revision coming but i don't know right i mean at the end of the day most of you guys probably get into it uh to make edmonton a better place not just necessarily your one community no and you know it's one of the things that people don't realize is that the you know, the oath we take when we take office is to serve the whole city, not mm. just to serve our ward. That right. We're actually supposed to make decisions for the whole city and not mm -hmm. to be kind of parochial and local about it. I mean, we're expected to understand our wards and to bring that forward and to bring the perspective forward of our wards. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, the decisions we make can't just be in the interest of our own ward. It's got to be in the interest of the whole city. Right. Well, that's good to know um, for, for everyone here. So I want to take you back a little bit growing up in Edmonton, um, did you did you ever have your eye on politics before? I know you kind of uh, lived you know, a different life. I've always life. been political. I didn't grow up here, though. I moved here in 81. So okay. I, uh, Where you, where'd you come from? I, well, I all over. I was originally born in New York. New York uh, City? I moved to Canada when I was 12, yeah. So <laughs> no I, way. But went to Winnipeg. So yeah. I feel like I grew up in Winnipeg, mm -hmm. uh, although I actually didn't live there that long. So, um, But that was you know where I spent all of my kind of junior high. The formative years. years? Yeah, so the ones that you remember. I think the formative years were probably spent in New York, but you don't remember them the same way. So yeah, so I came to Winnipeg in 1970, and then uh, and then um, when I graduated, went to university originally in in Peterborough, mm -hmm. at Trent University in Ontario. What were you taking there? I ended up taking cultural studies. Uh, so, um, but I but I'd always been you know even in high school I'd been interested in politics, but I'd never really seen myself as likely as a politician. I think that was a kind of that was a little bit of a surprise. I was always more interested. I was interested in politics, and I certainly was interested in in advocacy and spending right. a lot of time. You know, you know the, that the kind of those kind of issues, the kind of those kind of things, and and my interest in what was happening around me. And, and engaging in that was something I had 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 since I was a teenager. So that wasn't particularly new. And then I and then I came out to um, I came out to Edmonton to do my master's degree in fine arts, okay. uh, training as a theater director. So that's what brought me out here in 1981, and I've never left. What about the advocacy, the political nature? What, what drew you to that? I mean, because if I look at my childhood, like that, and I don't know if I'm atypical, but there was nothing interesting about that. I wasn't even aware of that, right? Like, and I don't know if it was a, I was just a bad student. I, you know, I don't know. I've just always been interested in the kind of larger questions around me and, mm. you know, the world that I live in and, and the ability to change and affect that world and, mm -hmm. the, you know, the quality of the lives we live. So it plays out in a whole different, whole bunch of different ways, but I, I don't know, I don't know why I was interested in it, but mm -hmm. it's, but it's an interest that really goes back, you know, probably to that time I spent in Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, you know, I, although I always, you know, I joke that the first campaign I ever worked on was, was, was at the age of, I think, six or eight. I, I went around the building I lived in campaigning for, for uh, LBJ, for, for Johnson. Oh, yeah. Little buttons and everything. It must have been quite <laughs> a funny sight. So I got started early on. Yeah, um, good for you. So that's my first memory. But no, I didn't, I certainly didn't, you know, stay 
political in, in the American context, but I got interested, I think, in, um, in what was happening around me when I came to Canada as a, as a teenager. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you, do you ever wonder what your life would have been like had you stayed in New York? Because, uh, I mean, that's <laughs> New York to Winnipeg yeah, is a vastly yeah. different context. You know, at the time, at the time, you know, we the fam my family left New York. New York was in pretty rough shape. It was that you know, nineteen seventy was when you know they were about to go bankrupt. Mm. And, you know, they were, uh, you know, legendary for you know for being unsettled and a crime. And so the kind of impression that people have of New York now is very different from what New York was like back then. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know what would have happened if I stayed in the states. I I, I I don't know. It was it was a different it was a different place. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't of draftable age. Um, when we left, but that would have happened eventually, and I don't know what choices that would. You know, it it was a it was the U.S. was an unsettled place at that time. I suppose it's unsettled again right now, <laughs> arguably, um, but it was deeply divided. And mm. I, you know, I, and even as a even as a ten, eleven, twelve year old, I was aware of that division. Mm. It's it's interesting for someone of my age who's only now getting interested in the political world, seeing kind of what's happening in the states and even what's happened most recently in the, the Alberta provincial elections, how divided we seem to be on mm-hmm. so many issues. And so for someone who's really only seeing this for the first time, I, I'm kind of left wondering, has this been the way it's always been or is this new? Uh, it. It does feel it does feel angrier right now than I remember it being. With the exception, you know, it's interesting. You know, looking back on that period of, you know, leaving, you know, the like 68, 69, 70 in the U.S., where you know you had this, you know, radical division in the country between the generation that had fought the Second World War and their mm-hmm. kids who were, who were, who were very angry at being sent. To, to, to Vietnam for a war that, that just didn't make sense to them, mm-hmm. and you know that there was a but that was a real that was a real generational clash. But it really did tear families apart and mm-hmm. communities apart, and neighborhoods apart. This one feels a little bit different, and it may have been brewing for quite a while. But it, I don't know. I, I wonder how much of it has to do with 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 internet and social media and the change in the discourse mm-hmm. um, and an oversimplification of the discourse and oversimplification of the way we talk to each other so it allows for polarization it allows for people to expose themselves only to one point of view and not actually hear the full discussion and debate I think our, our ability to have access to information that actually is perhaps a little bit not balanced isn't really quite the right word but a little bit more um, where, where there is more debate, where it isn't mm-hmm. just sort of hearing, you know, going to the news sources or listening to the people you agree with. I'm wondering if that has something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've also, you know, in in you know in North America, we've gone through a pretty significantly long period of peace, and I and I don't know if that may actually, ironically, make people more contrary to each other. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's it's. Uh, um, I, I it does feel particularly nasty right now. But I'm not sure that was true. I'm not sure that was true ten years ago. You know, I, I think, you know, thinking back to to the, you know, where the world was at after September 11th, it or up until September 11th, with, you know, there it felt like there was a possibility for a lot of that divisiveness to go away. And then I think with September 11th, it may have come back again. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've probably been building, building, and building on that ever since. So I, you know, it, it's I. Um, 
but I, I do I do worry a little bit that our access to good information right now and good th thoughtful discussion is really really perilously low and I mm -hmm. think that's part of what's doing it to us mm -hmm. well, we seem to be chaotic by nature and that the the less real things we have to worry about the more we promote some kind of superficial things to worry about to, to the uh, to the extreme yeah, no people often you know people often assume, you know assume that our politics or the politics is uh um, is inherently nasty and 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 the reality is you the politics tends to get snarkier and more vicious um, the less important the decisions you are that you have to make <laughs> and you know there's there's a long-standing joke that if you want to find really nasty politics you you know you you, you go into a university politics mm -hmm. and, and you know where you know no one's gonna die based on the decisions that are made mm -hmm. you know and the more you get to making those really hard decisions where it is a kind of where you are connected to life and death stuff that it um, it gets less snarky. Yeah. Well, the stakes are lower, and also the people yeah. who tend to be involved in that discourse are younger. They don't have that experience and that sort of ability oh, to I, step no, I pull back. I, right. I was talking about the faculty. I wasn't talking about the students. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's interesting. And I also think too, as people age, they tend to, if if I'm not mistaken, skew more conservative as they get older. People start off a little bit more liberal and and move in that direction. So while it doesn't seem to be a generational battle in Alberta specifically, you do see a lot of younger people with more liberal leaning ideas. Yeah, maybe. I actually don't know if people tend to get more conservative, but they probably get less polarized, right? Mm. Things seem much simpler the less, you know, the less you've seen, the, the less you've seen of the various different mm -hmm. um, uh, effects of various different choices right? right and and so I mean I certainly remember when I was younger it certainly felt simpler but I don't so I don't think my politics has changed I don't think my beliefs has changed mm -hmm. I think what's changed is my understanding of what's possible what makes sense what's actually going to achieve some of the things right. that I believe in so you're able to um, see a little bit more through the rhetoric uh, I want no. I I can actually see what's doable and what may not be doable yet, or how right. you actually get you know what's actually going to work, mm -hmm. and in order to achieve what I you know what has always driven me forward, which, which is you know to leave the world a better place than I found it, right? Mm -hmm. So, and but, but it, you can that the the kind of some things feel felt really simple and self self evident when I was younger that I. You know that I realize now are not as simple to achieve. Right. But I don't think, I don't think my ideals of what I'd like to see have changed. Like mm -hmm. I think that I don't think those kind of core values change in people. Right. But maybe the ways you see to get there. Well, yeah, I just think you understand the arguments deeper, and you know, it's like the first philosophy class I took in university. He brings up a question of I can't even remember a specific example, but something you're like, oh, this seems pretty simple, and then all of a sudden, an hour later, you leave like I don't know what I think. I know what I feel intuitively mm -hmm. is right, yeah. but all these arguments I can see both yeah. sides, and yeah. it's it's yeah. just the world becomes overwhelming, and that seems to be the most the, the toughest thing to grasp for politics, and people just shut down and then and then kind of stick with an ideology or a, you know. A, Identity politics of but like I, this is me, this is what I believe. But in. I also think that ties back to the the fact that we get our information in these tiny little snippets. Mm -hmm. now. You know that that uh, that you don't. There there's no way. It's very it's very hard for us to communicate when we're making choices. The full complexity of all the things you have to look at because mm -hmm. we just don't have a mechanism for doing that. Right. And uh, you know that everything 
the media is now all about you know the soundbite. It's one of the reasons why I wasn't a big fan of Twitter as a mean of, of a means of having that kind of conversation because mm-hmm. what kind of real discourse could you have in 140 characters? Mm-hmm. Um, so I I think that's that's part of that's part of I think what gets frustrating here is that ability to go to go to the public when you're having to make a hard discussion, a hard decision and saying on here's the consequences of this on the one hand is this on you know and have that larger have that larger discussion. I don't think there's a lack of interest in the public's part. I just don't know if there's good mechanisms to correct. Are there any specific examples of um, initiatives or things, whether at the municipal or the, or the provincial or even federal level, that you knew exactly what they were trying to say or putting forward, but you saw exactly how it got misinterpreted? Can you think of any specifics? Uh, you know, some of the really contentious debates we've had that got polarized really quickly, I think the arena was one of them at back in its time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the closing of the airport was another one where, where people got positional very quickly. Mm-hmm. And there were pluses and minuses to both sides. There, you know, there was no clear-cut answer. There were there were benefits, there were benefits and downsides, and and in the end, you know, you had to try and work your way through to a point where you, where you have a decision had to be made. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and I think there were probably a lot of people that just sort of made assumptions around what they thought was happening. You know, this idea that suddenly that that we were subsidizing. That we were a huge subsidy to a to a, to a private sector interest. Mm-hmm. You know, in reality, we had always made a commitment that no tax dollars were going to go in. Right. And they haven't. They never have. But I think a lot of people don't believe that. Yeah. Um, and but it was complicated. It's not a simple thing to show why it's not tax dollars that going in. <laughs> right. But those are not easy ideas to be able to talk about in in a in a hundred and forty k tweet. Yeah, hundred percent. Those are high level, complex, yeah. economic. Yeah concepts yeah. that you're trying yeah. to to explain to people and, yeah. and typically I think when people don't have any any power to really say in something they tend to get a little conspiratorial about it mm-hmm. too right yep. well, what's going on behind that behind the curtain right who's really pulling the strings and it tends to be that you know that you attribute something to malevolence versus just yeah and, it, and my experience is you know that you know that people assume a level of conspiracy about stuff that in my experience is people don't have the time or effort or the ability to work out that level of conspiracy to actually pull it off. Right. You know, that I'm far more, you know, I, you know, way, way more likely to, to explain certain things to sort of stupidity than, than to actual scheming. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, stupidity is way easier to do. Scheming is, you know, we, you just, there isn't the time to, to sort of think that many moves ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and the world's you know, too unpredictable. The, the kind of assumption that people make about, about that, those, those kind of, Plots and schemes is just my experience. It's just unlike. It's unlikely. I don't think it. it I wouldn't say it never happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but my experience is most most of the decisions are being made with what you have at the time and are not. It's not like playing chess many many years ahead. Right. So you're not a big believer in the Illuminati. <laughs> no. Uh, not, certainly not in the effects of the Illuminati. Right. That way. <laughs> Maybe there are a bunch of guys yeah. thinking that they're making an impact yeah. and they're not. Um, so you you've also been a mediator and negotiator mm-hmm. in your career and. I'm sure that comes into play as part of these discussions and city council go back and forth. Do you find yourself with amongst the councillors playing that role? No, it's because we're, you know, the kind of training that I had, um, you know, the, the way we're forced to work, which is a good thing. I, I wouldn't question it. It does not lend itself to the kind of real ability to think things through and talk things through and, 
and really get underneath what's important to people and all the kind of things. I, I would say where those skills have been way more useful for me is in actually working with the public because mm-hmm. it was a chance to really sort of be able to work with people and spend some time with them and really find out what was important to them. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we tend to come at things with the answers rather than with the questions. And so the mediating skills and the negotiating skills helped me really get to, to, to sort of get to the real question rather than coming up with an answer that may actually not solve the problem. The reality of the way council works, because everything has to be so public, because mm-hmm. you know, which is good and absolutely, but we're not really allowed to have those kind of general safe conversations where you can just muse about things right. and mull about things and dig stuff out. There's no real mechanism for us to do that, um, which is which is a which is sad in some ways. It's a flaw in our system, but I don't think there's any way around it because mm-hmm. I would never compromise never compromise the fact that that everything we do has to be has to be in public there's right. very few things we're you know we don't like going into private very often and we're going into private because there may be certain things that would damage third parties it's not about damaging us right um, so but that does mean that that chance just to have an informal conversation and mm-hmm. we can do it one-on-one but, but mm-hmm. there's no real chance to kind of do the kind of level of level of deep dive um, that I think the, the way I was trained as a mediator was all about. In, in working with the public and, and finding out what people are looking for, have you, have you noticed any overarching sort of themes in, in terms of, you know, we're all the same. These are all the main key points that we're, we're, we're trying to achieve in life or that we want out of our city. I, I think in the Edmonton context, that's not hard uh, in actual fact because I, I, you know, I think people may have different ideas of how to get there, but everybody ultimately wants a city that that they enjoy living in. And it's, you know, it's, a, it's one of the interesting challenges of Edmonton is that in some ways people are relatively happy, I think, with with being here. It's why, you know, people, you know, it's interesting. The outside perceptions of Edmonton and the inside perceptions of Edmonton are so different that, that how, you know, this is a hard city to get people to come to, but once they're here, they don't want to leave. So I, I think it's about trying to hold on to that for a lot of people, understanding that we can't really, you know, this... There's no way, I think if there's a tension around things, is that the status quo, when you're growing the way we've grown, I mean, we've added two, 300,000 people since, since I got here 12 years ago, and uh, well, 200,000 anyway. Well, that's, you know, there's the only other city in this, in this province is bigger than that is Calgary. That's a lot of people to add to a place. So it, it is changing, and it has to change if we're going to keep on, unless we're prepared to say nobody else moves here, which I don't think is in anybody's interest. <laughs> Um, you know, if, if growth is inevitable, then there's going to be change, and that creates tension because it's really change is a change is a very attractive thing if you're not happy with what you have. Mm-hmm. It's a scary thing if you are happy with what you have because it's hard to imagine change making it better. Of you course, don't imagine change making it worse, um, or you're scared that it'll make it worse. So, I think I think there is a kind of I think Edmontonians, are, you know, do for the most part really like this city and. Uh, and they just have different ideas of what the city needs to look like next. That's mm-hmm. where they diverge. What's important for them to hold on to and what the next version of the city looks like. And I think there are some generational challenges there as well, which is I think the most interesting thing that we're, str- that we're grappling with right now, that the, that the really we're building the city now, not for, for me, mm-hmm. but for you know the next generation. I'm getting to the point of being close to done. Um, you know, 
with you know with my influence and in, in, in time on the city so it's imagining what that next group that are going to inherit the city what kind of city they want and trying to build that one mm-hmm. and that that rump bumps up against the interest of people that you know have built the last version of the city and and are you know don't want to see it change right well it must be really hard to predict though what the next generation is going to want what what kind of lifestyles are going to be attractive to them and and how are they going to want to live are they going to think we're getting some pretty good indications mm-hmm. you know I, I think i think the real shift has been that um there's a real desire for an urban place rather than a suburban one mm-hmm. I, I, I don't you know I don't think I'm making that up I, I think I think uh, and and uh, and there's there's no question that when you know that when we're dealing with fulfilling any kind of commitment that we have to, to greenhouse gas um, um, a limitation and mitigation that, uh, that the, the kind of city that we built for the last um, for the last 30 years is just not sustainable we just can't keep on going on like that uh, and that and that the next generation knows that they're going to pay the price if we don't. So they see that in a different kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I I actually I actually think we're getting a pretty clear idea of what of of that kind of energy. I mean it's you know that's it's the 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 real success of of cities moving forward or cities like Edmonton is on being able to hold on to the brightest and the best and and that means creating a a very livable exciting mm-hmm. vibrant city the kind of people we're going to need next mm-hmm. whether we want next or we want to hold on to next or are going to be you know highly educated and you know wanting certain things out of their quality of life um, that that come from from being together in a in a in an exciting and vibrant urban space so i think that's where we have to go mm-hmm. um, but i think that's different from the from the kind of place we've been in the past. Well, it's funny because there you, you grow up and you're kind of, for a while you're kind of beholden to your your parents or the past generation's ideals of mm-hmm. what it means to be successful, right? So my generation, I'm 30, so my generation has sort of gotten that quite a bit. It's like, you know, I got a little bit of guff from people close to me saying, you know, are you making the right call? Like leaving a good paying, steady job to, to promote, um, to pursue more of an entrepreneurial lifestyle and I think a lot of people younger than myself are taking taking those options mm-hmm. right they're kind of piecemealing their career together building it and everyone's kind of building themselves into a bit of a, a media brand and with that it, you know comes that lifestyle of wanting to be more urban like you said urban over suburban and also getting out from under the pressure of like do I need to be married with a kid by the time I'm 25? Do I need to have a house in the suburb with two dogs and a pickup truck? You know, like. and you know, and one of the other things that is that is shifting big time is is that you know that not uh, it feels like the next generation doesn't want to particularly be tied down, which means less interest in owning. They still want a nice place to live, but mm-hmm. they don't necessarily want to own it. Mm-hmm. Um, they they may not imagine themselves in the same job for life. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- you know, I think that experience that's already come and gone. You know, twenty years ago, I I can't think of too many people that I grew up with that did the same thing their entire <laughs> lives. Right? right. So I think that shifted with my parents' generation. Um, but but that creates different that creates different kind of challenges for us as a city, mm-hmm. and, um, and 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 we have to be able to respond to those challenges, and and that involves change. So I you know I think I really feel I think the change is inevitable. I think if you don't change, there's a stagnation that mm-hmm. will set in. You much as I understand that everybody wants to hold on to the things they love, um, that we have, you can't. It's not you don't think we can do it. So mm-hmm. I think the real challenge for us 
is to say there's going to be change and we're here to make sure the change is better. It's it actually you don't need to be scared of change because our real focus has got to be make sure that the next city we build is even better than the one we have. And right. It's not worse. I think we can do that, but that's the discussion and that's the conversation we need to have with the public. So the natural fear that you can imagine change only making it worse, I think our responsibility is to go change doesn't have to be worse. It can be better and we're we're watching that carefully to make sure that it is better. Mm-hmm. That that's our job. So with more focus on urban versus suburban, what specifically does that look like? What are some examples of, of how this city might change in the next 20 years or 50 years? Say? I think the real struggle, and I, you know, people joke that we have a war on the car, but, um, and I don't think we do, I don't think anybody's, but the flip side of that is I think, we, unfortunately, so much in the growth of this city happened in a period where we thought the car was the answer to everything. Mm-hmm. And in retrofitting that the growth that happened here in the 50s, 60s, and 70s is going to be tough. Um, but I think we need to do that. I, I think on a whole bunch of levels, that's not a financially state sustainable choice for people. Uh, it actually it actually ultimately creates more problems than, you know, the car didn't solve the problems we thought it was going to solve. Mm-hmm. And that means we have to rethink and build neighborhoods that are less dependent on that, that um, where, you, you know, where you can walk to the shops, where you can walk to, to your restaurants, where you can where it can just be more compact, mm-hmm. where you can move around more easily. And, and to do that, you need, you need more people living closer together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the kind of huge use of land that, that also went into those 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s neighborhoods, um, you can't do that. Um, you can't do that and provide those kind of things that people want out of a community, out of a neighborhood. I think that's the big shift. So it's so it's not it's not it's not that cars are going to go away. It's not anti-car. It's not that you you know we don't still need that. But but I think what people but but those kind of neighborhoods aren't giving people what I think they're looking for. Mm-hmm. And as long as you have as long as 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 long as you have that really spread out group of people, you can't sustain the kind of community that people I think are hungering for and wanting. Mm-hmm. You need people. A little bit closer together. You need you need people, which is not to say that you know I'm I I'm I've never been a big fan of the re, of going to the opposite extreme of everything being high rise towers. I think there's something in between that we just haven't been very good at creating here. That has that is really the core to all the cities that people imagine as the great cities. They're mm-hmm. not they're not high density cities. They're medium right. density cities. They're yeah. medium height cities, and we're just missing those kind of communities. Right. Um. And and, and I. And I think you know that that means just a slightly different focus on what we think our priorities for are as we go forward. Um, uh, but I, I, you know, and 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 I'm sort of lucky because I, I I confess I represent the neighborhoods that are that mm-hmm. or that are our closest are closest to that where I think there is a real hunger for that. Um, and 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 I think in some ways our really newest neighborhoods are doing a better job of that as well. Um, but we've got this huge kind of donut um, between the core and between our newest neighborhoods um, that are that are going to be really hard to reimagine mm-hmm. to get us there, and and are between those newest neighborhoods and a lot of the things that they want to be able to get to. So that creates a transportation problem for us as well. Yeah. How often do you do you feel that people don't really know what they're looking for? Like you need to just kind of show them. You know, it's, you've seen the research, you've seen where the trends are going, and a lot of people are resisting the change. It must be tough to just sometimes, you must bang your head against the table saying, like, look, trust us, this is where things are going. Do you know, it was, 
I, I wouldn't say that. No, I, I, I don't think we, I, I would never say trust us, we know what we're doing. Right. That's not legitimate for a politician to say. I think we have to be able to make our case. Of course. But I would say on the other hand, you know, when I was, when I was an artistic director and there were, you know, that we were always under pressures when we were choosing our seasons to do surveys, what does the audience want to see? Mm -hmm. And the problem was all the audience could tell us was what the only way they could tell us what they wanted to see was by telling us what they had already seen. Right. But they didn't really want to see it again. <laughs> they wanted to see something new. And it was it was our job to try to go, okay, here's here's here I, 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 I get I get I get what you're looking for and to be able to imagine what that is and then be able to put it on the table for people. But then you can't force feed it to them. That mm -hmm. doesn't work either. So ultimately, we need, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we're just getting Blatchford going. Yeah. And I, you know, and, and I think Blatchford, the, the real piece of Blatchford was about putting something different on the table to show that there's a market for it, mm -hmm. right? Was to create that new thing that people hadn't seen before under the assumption that if you can provide it for them, they will get it, you know, they'll go eat. This is what I want. And that if we can show, if the city can show by putting that out there almost like a pilot, that there's a real market for it, that the, the, that the marketplace will respond and follow. Right? right. That's the real gamble. of. It's not a gamble. I don't think it's a gamble. I think it's a pretty safe bet. Right. But, you know, we had the ability to take some risks there that, that the private sector can't take because if they lose, they lose, they lose big. And, um, and if we can show that there are different kinds of products out there, there are different kind of markets out there, then I think you'll see the private sector following very quickly. It's exciting because how often do you get a fresh start for, for a whole new community like that? That was what was so remarkable about that opportunity. Very few cities get that. And it was one of the things that made the whole airport debate attractive in ways that I'm not sure people understood at the mm -hmm. time, was you just don't get that opportunity in the core of your city very often. And, and that's why I've always felt really that we couldn't fritter away that opportunity. There was, we, doing same old, same old in there would have been inexcusable. Mm -hmm. How much involvement do you have with Blatchford? Uh, well, you know, I've been around since the beginning of it. Um, so I've been there for all the big decisions we've made on it. Uh, I'm not by any means day to day um, uh, because, uh, because it's not part of my ward. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, you know, uh, but you know, I, I chair chair the utility committee, which is part of the, which has some of the responsibility up there in terms of how we're going to be doing the new utility we're setting up for district energy. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm pretty keenly aware of how it's all working and watching it keenly and have a lot of hope for it. So. Yeah. But you know, when the first you know the first houses are literally going on the market right now, and it sounds like they're getting snapped up. So, I th you know I think a lot people, I think there's. I think people have been impatient for it and th thought it was stalled and thought it wasn't working. It just takes a while to make that stuff happen. Yeah, and, people and, are so used to instant yeah, gratification and, uh, these days. So I think we're I think we're going to see it. I think I think the the kind of success story of Blatchford is just going to start kicking in now. Well, that's good. Good to hear. Um, so we just talked a little bit about sort of where the where the city's going and the, and the future of where we might be living and how we might be living. How do you balance that? Because you're part of the the Strathcona uh, Foundation. Um, how do you balance that with maintaining, preserving sort of the the community history and? Well, you have to. I, mm -hmm. You know that that in some ways, you know, in some ways, it, you know what was really interesting. We were very lucky to hold on to, to kind of old Strathcona White Avenue area. Um, you know, it wasn't you know for various different reasons that had as much to do with the fact that it was considered a derelict part of town at the time when it was most under threat of being 
knocked down and as a result survived. It meant that there was a kind of built form, a kind of main street, a kind of walkable space mm -hmm. that survived what happened in the rest of the city. And um, and uh, and I and I think those kind of examples, that kind of connection to past, that kind of connection to history, is part of our identity. You can you can't if you rebuild the city every fifty years. Mm -hmm. And and you know, and I will argue that there's a huge part of our you know I'm having just disparaged the you know some of the, some of those neighborhoods in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. You know, they are part of our culture. They're part of our history. What mm -hmm. they're about, I would never argue that you, you know, that we should wipe them all out and start again. I mm -hmm. think, I think, uh, y you know, there, are, you know, diversity in a city is really important. I just, we're still a very young city, although we've been here actually on the space for quite a while. Um, but as this, but most of the growth of the city has happened really in the last hundred years. So, um, you know, I, y we. That sense of who we are and that identity can, if you keep on erasing that and erasing mm -hmm. that and erasing that, then then you're not going to have a very rich place to live. Right. I, you know. So I think you need all of that. It's um, and ironically, I would argue that some of the ways some of the ways that those neighborhoods were built up originally is part of what we're now recognizing we need to get back to. Right. Um, because they worked. They worked for interesting and different kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we, I. You know, doing all the work we did on Winter City, and you know everybody, you know, went, oh, we you know we need the pedways because we're in Winter City. Well, the reality is there's no pedway within miles of of White Avenue, and yet, uh, you know, Christmas shopping is mobbed, it's packed because it has that kind of fine grain mm -hmm. of stores that you can walk to, and yeah, you got shelter, yeah, you got a coffee and, shop, you know, a bookstore. And there's way so there were there were way more people wandering through that area than were wandering through downtown, which mm -hmm. we made kind of hermetically sealed. So. I think there's lessons we need to learn from some of that stuff as well. And if you don't have it anymore, if you haven't held on to it, mm -hmm. if you don't have any sense of who you are, where you came from, then then you're you're not creating a city again that people. I mean, our job is to create a city that people want to live in, mm -hmm. and and having that history, having that past, having that understanding of who you are and where you came from is a mm -hmm. huge part of that. To be devil's advocate, though, I mean, why is that important? Why is it under? Why is it important to to have that part of our history and not forget about it. I mean, it's tough for me. It's tough to conceptualize because okay, you think of old historical cities, at least in North America, you think Boston, New York, Pennsylvania, and you, you get it. You're like, okay, those are hundreds of years old, and no one would ever think of knocking any of that his, historical but stuff down. But if you down. don't, if you, but if if they knocked that down a hundred years mm -hmm. ago or two hundred years ago, you wouldn't have three hundred year old stuff. Right. We have a bad habit of knocking things down when they're thirty or forty years old and mm -hmm. then wondering why we don't have any sixty year old buildings. <laughs> right. So there's a period at which they feel old and and out of touch and mm -hmm. hackneyed that mm -hmm. if you can get them past that, if you can get them to survive that, then they begin to take on a they, they begin to take on a texture that you just we don't see because we see them. Mm -hmm. And I the biggest the, the buildings are the biggest risk for me in the city right now are the stuff that was built in the in the fifties, sixties and seventies. Um, because we just see them as old right now rather than as interesting. And if you actually step back and look at them and recognize that they're a statement about their time, um, and who we are and who lived here at that time. And I, I think that's I think if you don't have that, you're going to be living in a very, very sterile place mm -hmm. and have no sense of its, no sense of who it is. Mm -hmm. You know, cultures are really, really important part of understanding who we are. Um, it's hard to quantify. That gives it, you, the, you know, that gives you, you know, that gives you identity. It's part of what can bring you together. It can bring, it gives you pride. It gives you a sense of, 
of continuity and all those kind of things gives you a sense, I suppose, of responsibility. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that we're not just here for now. You know, that you know, my sense of responsibility is it's not just for me to make sure I'm comfy, it's about leaving mm -hmm. something for the next people. And if you don't have a connection to your past and recognize that people have done that for you, then what's your responsibility to move it forward to the future? Right. Yeah, it's hard to quantify, but when you walk into a building like the MKT building, the old train mm -hmm. station, yeah. and you see that room and sort of the, yeah. you know, the majesticness of it, you feel it. And yeah. it. But you can't put that on paper. You can't write that down in numbers. So it's a very, like art in general, it's a hard thing to quantify what well, it means to people. It, you know, and it, and it ties you back to the people that built the place, right? It ties you back to the you know, the, the ties you back to a sense of to a sense of place, and if mm -hmm. you know, if 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 our objective is to give create a place where people want to be and want to stay and want to live their lives in, which I think is what we have to do, mm -hmm. then you need that continuity back to say this is somewhere that has permanency to it, that has that has a history to it, that has that has that has this tradition and the connection and all those kind of things that are the, the springboard for what we do next. Right. But if, if you don't have a springboard, if you take that away, then you're starting from scratch each time mm -hmm. and there's nothing to tie you there's nothing to tie you to this place anymore. Right. I, it must. It's hard for a guy like me to understand because I've moved around a lot. I grew up in Vancouver and kind of circling back to what you said about people it's hard to get people here, but mm -hmm. once they're here, they don't want to leave. That was exactly me. Like I moved to Edmonton when I was 22, having come from yeah. Vancouver, a world-class city, and and um, you know people people typically go west. They don't mm -hmm. typically come east. And uh, and everyone said like, why are you staying in Edmonton? Why wouldn't you go back to Vancouver after your job was done? And I, just, it's hard to explain, but there's just something about the city, the vibe of it, the people. So I always like to ask people, what what is that X factor to you? How would you put that into a couple sentences? Well, you know, I'm a perfect example. I came in 1981 to do my master's degree for two years and had mm. no ex expectation of staying. And there was, you know, I really, at that, you know, I liked, I, what I liked about Edmonton at the time is it had, uh, it had all the qualities and all the qualities and amenities of, a, of, a, of, a, of an urban life of a, of a big city um, without the kind of overwhelming, um, anonymity of you know of a really big city mm -hmm. and uh, it was a it was a kind of perfect balance of those two things and I think we still have that I, I don't think that's gone away I still think I still think it uh, it doesn't it do, it feels like I think that kind of welcoming and friendliness may be part of it mm -hmm. um, that there's a spirit here that is that is that is positive um, and 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 um, and not overwhelming um, you know, so that's, I mean, uh, quite frankly, you know, it also, I had the opportunity, you know, it was because I was in a cultural business, I, I was in theater, there was opportunity here for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I could I could build a career and make a life here, and, and um, I don't know if that would have been true elsewhere as well, so that was part of the attractiveness also. Right. Um, but I didn't really want to live in a truly huge and, you know, and sterile place either. So, um, but the, yeah, I, I, there's something, there's something... Um, you know, there's something uh, there's something in the ways of the people that built this place too that I think is deep in our psyche. You know, it's that. You know, and now it's really interesting because we, you know, we're really understanding the indigenous and the indigenous, you know, the indi indigenous 
interest here is again, but mm-hmm. most you know most of Edmonton in terms of the new people that came here was 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 the population of European immigrants coming west and mm-hmm. stopping, and that that kind of mix of of that kind of European European piece, I mean, I think has stayed very much part of who we are. Um, and there's a number of other cities across the prairies that are like that. Not yes. all of them. I mean, you know, Calgary Calgary was largely populated by Americans coming north, which is why it has a different culture. It's a different Interesting. place. Um, so Edmonton's got more of that pioneer mentality, that sort of forging, braving the great white north. Uh, well, I would, I would say that Calgary had that too, but and it's a different kind of thing. I mean, it, it, was, came more from a, it came more from a, from a European hmm. from a European influence, I think, here than it did from that kind of... Wild West kind of thing that, right. that was part of that American energy of trying to get away from things and coming coming right. out into the uh, out into the wilderness, um, which is why I think you know they're very different cities. I mean, people assume they are. that they're. I've they're lived the in same, both. I can attest that. But they're you know, and it's not a good or a bad. It's you know, you 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 connect with whatever. Um, you know, there's a kind of um, collaborative ethos I think in Edmonton mm-hmm. that we tend to, we tend to help each other. Um, it's probably less competitive, um, and that has its advantages and disadvantages. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I think, you know, our ability to support each other means we're sometimes not as self-critical as we need to be. Right. You know, we don't push ourselves quite as hard as we maybe should. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it makes for it makes for you know it makes for a very um, it makes for a very friendly friendly <laughs> place to be. The typical uh, friendly Canadian. Uh, something you said about uh, White Ave in the winter time, people had bundled up and it's minus 20, 25 out and still at the shops. It reminds me of, have you ever heard of a city called Harbin in China? Yeah, I know Harbin. Well, Harbin's the sister city. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah Harbin's, uh, Harbin's quite, um, Harbin's, uh, it's, I, I, you know, it's a sister city, but Harbin's quite different. Right. It's, it's uh, um, Although, you know, what's really fascinating about Harbin is the core of Harbin, actually, was Harbin's not much older than us. There wasn't much there until the turn of the last century. Um, and and um, it was, uh, the core of Harbin, actually, was was developed by an emigre, uh, a, a Russian-Jewish emigre population. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they're not there anymore, interestingly enough. I think, I, I, think they, I think a lot of them went to Israel either before or after the Second World War. I've never been able to put that history together. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but you know, so in that core interest, you, you know, that it has some of that. But I don't, you don't, you see it in the buildings, you see it in the architecture. You, I don't sense it in the people in Harvard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's such an interesting place. So have you been there? Yeah. Yeah, I, I went there back yeah. in 2018, so actually just a year ago. Yeah. Um, I was shooting a documentary about hockey in China. And so Harbin is the birthplace of hockey in mm-hmm. China. And, and the curling. The curling team came from Curling, yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of figure skaters up yeah. there in the Heilongjiang province. Yeah. Uh, and it's so funny because even people in China have no idea this history. And we found out that, you know, the Russians came down over 100 years ago and had such a big influence. They've actually been playing hockey in the northern parts mm-hmm. of China for over 100 years. Um, so we went there and, and we interviewed the, the hockey team that they have there. It's a, it's a farm team from the KHL team that's now in China. But just walking on, I think it's just called Pedestrian Street, or I'm sure it has a, a Mandarin name, but it was minus 28 degrees, and humidity was like 85%. Oh, yeah. it's, a, it's a colder city it's than us. It's unbelievable. Yeah. But people are walking, yeah. they're buying yeah. stuff, yeah. They're, yeah. they're eating ice cream. Yeah. Firstly, I never thought to eat ice cream in freezing temperatures, but it doesn't melt. It's great. <laughs> they're out on the, the river skating. Yeah, and they're probably, you know, it's interesting. I mean, again, it's, 
you know, one of the things from when I was working on the Winter City stuff that was pointed out to me, because I spent some time in um, Scandinavia as well, mm-hmm. and they sort of said, the reality is Edmonton was, was, was populated, you know, uh, with the, that immigrant population um, by Southern Europeans, right? We, you know, so we're, so we're only still really learning how to be a winter people. Right. Um, whereas Harbin and, and Scandinavians, they've always been winter people, so they just don't think of it the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, you know, yeah, and and it really is. I mean, because they're much closer to the, much closer to the water, it's much damper in Harbin <laughs> than it is here. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, mu- it's definitely much colder. Did you get a chance to check out their uh, their ice festival? Yeah, uh, I went. I've actually went twice. I went. I went once in the in the fall, which was really quite lovely. And then and then went was also there for the opening of the of the ice festival one, a number of years ago. That's it's un- pretty. It's the pretty scale astounding. It's unima- yeah, unimaginable. Yeah. It's yeah. massive. Yeah, like you know, going to our our winter castle down in Horlack Park. It's n- nothing yeah. to no nothing to bat your eyes at, but it's 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 built a different way. It's too. built different yeah. to go there they and see the scale. They actually that ice out of the river. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what mean. all the farmers do in the winter because they can't farm. Yeah, yeah. Which we'd never be allowed to do here. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty. They kill one or two people a year to do it too. Oh my goodness! Yeah, China's just a different beast yeah. altogether. They've yeah. it's there's more onus put on the individual to take care of yourself there. It seems there's no like I've seen scooters crash and they just get up. You yeah. okay? You okay? Yeah, okay. See yeah. ya. Yeah, you know? it's shifting and changing there too. I think. I mean, mm-hmm. you know what's interesting about that ice thing is you know is it's um, it that's a that's private enterprises putting that together. Is they, that right? They make money off that. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you about the Winter City Initiative, mm-hmm. which I know you're a part of as well. Um, what, because I've always been curious about this, what com- what cities do you use as comparables to Edmonton? What are the major ones? Uh, you can't. And yeah. that was one of the really interesting discoveries. We, As I said, I did a lot of traveling around to different mm-hmm. cities. The real- And I think it's one of the mistakes we make is that no city's climate or condition is actually the same. Okay. So, so we can learn from each other, but... You know, the only city that I found that was remotely close to us climate-wise and felt geographically similar was Helsinki. Mm-hmm. But it even there, it's different because they're on the Baltic, right? Yeah, so we're not on sitting on a great big, you know. So, um, so you 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 borrow different thoughts from different different places, mm-hmm. and that was, I think, our first big discovery was that we needed to create in coming up with a winter city strategy we needed to come up with one that actually made sense in our context mm-hmm. you know because we don't have terribly cold winters in comparison to other western canadian cities i mean edmonton's really relatively temperate we had a you know that that one cold snap we had this year you know people will pretend that you know we get those every year but we don't we mm-hmm. haven't had one of those in a decade so you know most of our time is actually not in those kind of really cold snaps but we have freeze thaw cycles which mm-hmm. is a whole different problem the city like Winnipeg doesn't have, or Saskatoon, or Regina, they're not dealing with the fact that we, that it all melts and then freezes and melts and freezes. Right. That's changing as well. So those are some of the things we needed to understand. Um, we're much further south than the Scandinavian cities that may be similar in terms of climate, mm-hmm. but are much different in terms of darkness. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- so those are differences as well that we needed to be able to understand. Um, you know, again, you look at a city like Harbin, and Harbin, you know, again, wasn't, re- you know, th- you know, arguably Harbin, there's some questions probably I think would be useful for them to ask, but they haven't yet. And I think one, one of the things that became really interesting in doing, in going around to other cities and asking about, you know, 
what they were doing about being a winter city is most of them just looked at us blankly. The people weren't asking that kind of question. Right. And they're and just a city. <laughs> they're just a city, and some of them, were, some of them was instinctive. Some of them were making choices based without actually going. Our climate is different, mm-hmm. and I, so I think that the really pivotal thing for us was recognizing that we had things that were very specific to Edmonton, and we needed not to be borrowing choices from elsewhere that may not be appropriate to us. Um, but we really needed to be understanding our own challenges and mm-hmm. coming up with our own our own answers to that. Um, that uh, the, we don't get a lot of snow here, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So why do you can't borrow those kind of lessons? Um, so so that was one of the really interesting challenges, the Winter City piece. And I would argue that you know a lot of what's happened, particularly in North America, is a kind of homogenization of city design that we all. We're all designing the same cities, although we have radically different, radically different climates, mm-hmm. and that that's part of what we needed to get away from. So that's, you know, again, when I talk about those neighborhoods we built in, you know, we built in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you know, we were copying stuff from that was identical to what they were building in Phoenix. Right. Radically different climates. Phoenix doesn't have to clear snow, mm-hmm. so having a cul-de-sac is not a problem. But we built cul-de-sacs all over the place. Is that is that you a struggle? Know? I never lived in a cul-de-sac. Well, well where do you put the snow? snow? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, where? Yeah. You know, uh, you know, historically, we had always had boulevards that you could push the snow up onto. Right. We stopped doing those because everybody else was building these mono sidewalks, mm-hmm. right? So. You know, there were a lot of things like that where I think we needed to be able to do a rethink and, and you know, and, and understanding that, you know, understanding that sunlight is really important, that even probably even more important than sunlight because we have the shorter days is how you deal with wind. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, we have an entire downtown of microclimates and you, you say microclimate and you imagine that they're nice. We have hostile microclimates. Right. You know, the wind, if you go outside of City Hall and walk between here and the other, and, and our new new tower, the wind changes direction on you halfway down the street <laughs> consistently. There can be a perfectly calm day and there's a gale out there. Right. Those are the kind of things that we, that, that there are other places would have the need to build that in because mm-hmm. they need to move air. If you're in a hot climate, you want those kind of windy mm-hmm. conditions. We don't. And we needed to make different sets of choices that had to do with who we were. So that was the biggest lesson. And, uh, and and also understanding the other thing that nobody was doing that we were the first to do was to really think of it as a kind of holistic thing, that it wasn't just about design, mm-hmm. it wasn't just about operation, it wasn't just about public space, it wasn't just about how we entertained ourselves in winter, it wasn't just about how we used our parks, it was about all of those things. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is the overarching theme sort of bringing people together still, kind of causing that collision and creating that sense of community? Yeah, I think it was about, you know, the, the, the way I put it was we were, we had built a city where you, you got, you left your house without going outside to get into your car. Mm-hmm. Then you drove, probably in darkness, because it was, you know, it was still morning, to your underground garage. You went up into your tower. Um, and you spent the entire day there. You might go along your pedway to get your sandwich at some indoors and the pedway might not even be above ground it was probably below ground then you got back out and did that in reverse so the only time you saw the outdoors was looking through the window of your car in darkness right and then we wondered why we got depressed right so so a lot of it was about you know getting ourselves back to a point where where 
where we could create outdoor outdoor activity for people again, mm-hmm. where we could you could get out into daylight, you could get out into fresh air, and the and the and the people that took to it right off the bat were kids, right? Because mm-hmm. kids don't have that for a winter, but we we had begun to imagine our winters being much more severe than it actually is. Mm-hmm. You know, and and uh, and that's what we needed. You know, we'd stop doing any kind of maintenance in our parks in winter, let alone designing them for it, because we assumed we'd just put them away and nobody was going to use them. Right. So there was nowhere to go outside. There was no activity outside. We had all these summer festivals. We had no winter festivals. Um, so that's really shifted, and I think, and that got people outside, and they recognized that actually you could be sort of fun. That it wasn't nearly as hostile and harsh as they thought it was. Got to dress appropriately. You just have to dress up, which you can't do in summer, right? Yeah, Ironically, exactly. in winter <laughs> you can dress up. In summer, if it's really hot, you're hooped. Yeah. Um, but you know, the other thing was we had designed our city for the worst days of winter, mm. and if we designed our cities for the worst days of summer, we would never go outside. Right. Right. So we needed to you. you we needed to make changes so so you know that people could enjoy the majority of those days in this city in wintertime that are actually really nice, mm-hmm. and and not imagine this kind of myth that it's minus forty for six months of the year. Yeah. I mean, I think we've had one day in the last decade that has been below minus forty, and that was this winter. Right. Yeah, and I can attest to to the enjoyment of being outside. I got rid of my car a year and a half ago, and so you know, walking to the gym or the grocery store, it's fifteen twenty minutes. Yeah. But I was doing that at minus twenty five, and I was shocked that it was manageable. Like, oh, yeah. I just had my jeans, my boots, and then a and couple layers under and, my parka. And it's amazing if you stay out of the wind. The wind is the yeah. wind is the, the thing wind you need to keep. Yeah. The wind is you know which. But that's what irritates me about this kind of fixation on wind chill because mm-hmm. yeah, it's only wind chill if you go into the wind. Stay out of the wind. <laughs> put a hat on. You know, do something that doesn't mean you don't get wind. There's no wind chill. Mm-hmm. So. So if you, a couple more here for you, if you had a, the magic wand question and you could change one thing about Edmonton, um, sort of a do-over, is there anything that stands out to you, something that we're facing as a big challenge these days that you wish you could just kind of do over? Yeah, I, I do, I actually do wish that we could re- rethink and rebuild some of our communities more like the stuff that was here again a hundred years ago mm-hmm. um, those more compact grid pattern streets you know that were that that you, where you could walk to the store mm-hmm. um, that and and uh, you know that's that's the big you know and you can't there's no way to it's very hard to do that once you've committed to a different urban style um, or design style which I think we did for way too much of our city for for a period of, of massive growth of 20 or 30 years right so yeah, I, that's. I think that's because I, and I, and uh, and I. I prefer to see us go back to that kind of city than you know the other. The option we have right now is is to go to a kind of much, much higher density place, which I think has its own kind of downside. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that I think you want to create neighborhoods that bring people together, where you can meet people that are that have that kind of warmth to them, and I. And I don't think you can do that in a suburban context, but I also don't think you can do that in a really, really high density context either. You can create community within a building if it's mm-hmm. a high tower, but you can't create communities be- between buildings in quite the same way. But you can do that on a street of, of mid-rise. You don't have to be single family in order to do that. There's other ways to create that kind of sense of place. Um, that uh, and so I, so yeah, if I had a magic wand, that's you know would be getting us back back to those kind of places designed well because i think there's some of it that we built in the in the 70s you know the kind of the kind of three-story walk up i don't think helped either because Mm. they're essentially locked buildings they don't 
they also don't create people out on the street. They don't create right. that sense of. Um, so there's there's some of that that I think we're doing much better now than we did then. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's I think that would be I think that would be the, and you know when I regret. You know, I think we're slowly putting back some things we had. You know, we're slowly back putting back our, our you know, what would have been our tram lines that we took out in the 50s. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some of the stuff that I think we probably got right early on that created the neighborhoods that are the most popular now that people like the best. Right. That, um, that, uh, that we need. And, and, you know, we're not the only city that unfortunately had its major growth spurt just at a time when people thought they had a different answer to the question of how do we live together. But that's our problem. Mm. So going the other other way with that question, what's the most exciting thing for you about Edmonton right now? I think there's a real, you know, I think there's a real confidence and energy. I think there's a real enthusiasm about the city again. I, you know, we went through a period of where people tend tended to think the worst of themselves, and it's, you know, and and tended, you know, tended, you know, to believe the myth that Edmonton was cold and sterile, horrible, and why would anybody live here? I I think that's really shifted in the last you know in my time here. There's a there's an enthusiasm, there's a confidence, there's a joy in the city, and and I think there's a real hunger for all those things that make city really cool places to be, which is allowing those kind of things, those restaurants, those those you know, kind of entertainment, you know, the the the, the you know, those people spaces to be able to flourish and build up. I think that's the really exciting mm-hmm. thing right now. Um, Speaking of restaurants, specifically yeah. Strathcona, what, are you a fan of the, the El Cortez, Have Mercy, Holy Roller? Have you well, been to any of those yeah, spots? Yeah, I've been to all of them. And I, yeah, no, I mean, I think all of that is, you know, and the fact that, that we see those springing up all over the place, mm-hmm. you know, a block away, you've got, you've got you know, meat and the next act and, <laughs> and, and Pep, you know, again, all one owner yeah. doing this really exciting thing. And, yeah. uh, and the fact that those are popping up all over the place, I think is, you know, I think that's part of the, and, and that we have a city that is now, that is able to support all of that and, and mm-hmm. support it enthusiastically, yeah. I think is that's exciting. Uh, there's just a lot of, I, you know, I, th- I think, and again, I think that's, again, part of that energy of the next generation that is saying, mm-hmm. this is the city we want to live in. Yeah, Damn we're it, proud we're of gonna it. We're going yeah. we're gonna, we're gonna to respect yeah. the past, yeah. but we're going to yeah. forge our own future. Yeah. That, that mural on the side of the building there is just yeah, spectacular. Cool. That's no. like the best thing I never knew this city needed, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, and that was, and I think we'll, I think we'll see more of that, but that mm. was, you know, that was one owner determined to do it, and he yeah. put the money together for that. That yeah. wasn't us that did that. I mean, the city, I think we need to, make that kind of thing possible and get get out of the way yeah um, and I think there's gonna there's some more exciting stuff that's gonna be happening in there I think as a result <laughs> of some of the stuff that's happening for the people on the street mm-hmm. and that's what you get when you get the energy of that community coming together and yeah. the community can do stuff for themselves and that pulls people together and excites people and it, there's just a kind of momentum that comes out of that that I think I think we're I think and I I think probably that's the thing that keeps people here once they get here I don't. I don't think it's an accident. And you know that we have we have the community, whole community league movement here, and every Edmontonians assume that everybody has community leagues. They don't realize that they're pretty unique. You mm-hmm. know that that whole idea of, of communities banding together and, and they're a hundred years old. Right. You know? And uh, and I think somewhere in there, and it probably gump, comes from that kind of yeah pioneer farming spirit that you had to band together to, to, to survive, survive yeah <laughs> um that is part of the nature of this place that i think is probably what makes it so attractive to people 
Awesome. Well, I can't think of a higher note to leave this on than that. So, Counselor, thank you for your time. I Great, appreciate thanks. it. It was fun. Yeah, this was fun. I enjoyed the, uh, the history lesson and your insight. All right, take care. As always, guys, thanks immensely for tuning in. That's three counselors down and nine to go if you're counting at home. One final thing to mention this week is how great the Alberta Podcast Network is. This week, I want to highlight a particular podcast I find interesting called Walkcast. That's Walkcast, one word. It's hosted by journalist and urbanist Tim Querengesser, and Walkcast talks walkability in cities by walking it. Each episode takes experts and people passionate about cities on a walk to talk about what's working as they do so, what isn't, and what needs to change. I'll link to this podcast in the show notes, and you can also find it and other great Alberta-made podcasts by visiting albertapodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again, guys, and we'll see you next week.